a seat. It's good to be with you guys. If you are new or visiting, my name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at the Stone. If you have a Bible, go and open up to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew, you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. It'll be on the screen behind me throughout the entire sermon. So we've been working our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And if you've been around, hopefully you've begun to notice that in this one sermon, Jesus is covering a lot of different topics. And what he's doing in this sermon is he's teaching you, he's teaching me, here's what the kingdom of God is like. Here's what it's like. And the kingdom of God isn't off distant in heaven somewhere, but it actually has come to earth through Jesus and his inauguration of it. And so he teaches on what are the character traits of the kingdom of God. He teaches on how the kingdom of God blesses the world. He teaches on the correct interpretation of God's word in the kingdom. And then today in chapter six, he's gonna shift his focus a little bit. He's gonna move from this direct confrontation of false teaching. We've been going through these sayings of, you've heard this, but I say this. He's been confronting false teachers of his day. Well, now he's shifting into practical instruction on these spiritual practices of giving to the needy, of prayer, and fasting. It's it's gonna take us a while to get through all of these because Jesus spends a lot of time on prayer, but in verse one, he's gonna introduce this entire new section, and in verses two through four, he's gonna talk about how we as a people give to the needy. But before I read this text, I, I want you to know the main point. The main point that you need to walk away with knowing today in your heart of hearts is this, is you need to be careful. Be careful. You are closer to hypocrisy than you realize. You're closer to hypocrisy than you realize, and the consequences of hypocrisy are massive. Look at Matthew 6, 1 through 4. This is what Jesus said. He said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. There's a lot going on here. In verse one, Jesus begins with a warning. He begins with a warning. He says, beware, watch out, be careful. Now, warnings like this are all over the Bible. They're all over the Bible, and yet in our context, in our sort of generation of Christians, we don't tend to talk about the warning verses all that much. I don't remember the last time I saw an Instagram post with a warning verse on there, right? I don't remember the last time I saw, hey, be careful, hell's pretty close, flame is in the background. I haven't seen that. I don't follow that account, that'd be kind of scary. So I don't follow that for a reason. But we tend to focus together on the verses where God is encouraging his children to obey him. That's right and good. But he also uses fatherly warnings to instruct his children to obey him and trust him. And I've been thinking about this all week. I don't think it's an overstatement for me to say that one of the most consistent phrases that I have said over the last eight years is be careful. And the reason being is I have three young children. My whole life is spent telling them, be careful. Oh, watch out, be careful. Hey, Henry, stop, be careful. I do it all the time. 
And the reason I tell my children to be careful is because they don't really see how devastating the circumstances are around them. So my kids, all they can perceive is having fun. Like even last night, I'm walking in my neighborhood with Henry and he's kicking a soccer ball and I'm telling him, Henry, this is great, buddy. If it goes in the street, don't just run out into the street like it's no big deal. He's like, sure, dad, kick it right into the street. He runs right into the street. And all he can perceive is how much fun he's having. All I can see is a car running him over, right? And so I use kind of the dad tone, Henry, be careful. And I use that tone not to embarrass him, but to alert him, to heighten his senses. Warnings are not meant to shame you. They're meant to alert you. They're meant to show you there is danger and threats around you, even if you don't think there are. Actually, especially if you don't think there are threats around you, a warning is the most loving thing to do. This is why your parents, your teachers, your leaders growing up, they told you to be careful all the time. Every time you leave and drive away somewhere, they say, hey, drive carefully. Why? Because they know you don't really understand the decisions you're making. They know you don't understand what's at stake. And the number of times I have been warned in my life Hey, Tyler, be careful, don't do this thing. The number of times I have not listened is embarrassing. I thought about, there's so many stories this week that I could tell you where someone was like, hey, Tyler, be careful, don't put your buddy in that oil drum and push him down the hill, Hill, he'll probably get hurt, like sure, whatever, and then we end up in the hospital room, he has a concussion, they were right. There's so many stories like that where I was told, watch out, and I said, I'll be fine, turns out I wasn't. But one that uh, happened to me about, I don't know, seven to eight years ago, that I think hits a little closer to home was about money. A good friend of mine warned me about money. So me and Lauren had just had our first kid and um, we were on my entry level income which was enough to provide for us and support us but, but it wasn't, we had no margin, right? You've, some of you are there, you're living paycheck to paycheck and you're just hoping nothing like car just please don't break down, like that sort of place. That's where we were. But our friends who were close to us, they were older than us, they made more money than us, and they spent more money than us because they had more disposable income. And so what happened is we would hang out with them, we'd, we'd end up spending like them, but we didn't earn like them. So my friend of mine, who's about 10 years older than me, I remember we were in the car together at a stoplight. We were sitting there and he goes, hey Tyler, you need to be careful that you don't spend like they do because you're not in the same season of life as them. You don't make what they make. So you need to be careful and watch out. And I remember thinking, that's really helpful advice. I told Lauren about it, is this really helpful advice? But it wasn't enough to change our behaviors. And so we just kept spending like them, having fun with them, carefree, no real budget for us. And it was fun. But then what happened? We began to work ourselves into this perpetual credit card debt. This consumer debt that was always there. We're always paying towards it, we're never being able to save. Well, then what happens? We have more children. Turns out they're super expensive, right? Have more of those guys, and then we have more expenses, and then we have those unexpected expenses like the car breaks down or someone gets sick, we're trying to pay those, and all the while I still have that credit card debt that's just getting larger somehow, though I'm paying towards it. I don't understand how that works. And I remember there's a, there's, a couple, there's a year stretch where I was so stressed out and me and Lauren had so many fights over because this thing, this money situation was hanging over our heads. And I remember thinking in that moment, I remember what my friend had told me years before. 
I remember thinking I would trade every fun dinner, I would trade every moment of carefree spending if I could just have more than zero dollars in my savings account. Just more than zero would be great. That's all I wanted. I wanted no credit card debt and a little bit of savings so that we wouldn't be stressed every single month. So I wouldn't have to look at that Bank of America statement and go, I wonder if I hit refresh again, if it'll change, right? I wonder if there's somehow, and I remember my, my friend's words and I thought, I thought it was a distant possibility. And I didn't realize just how close it was. His warning, I was actually closer to the edge of falling into it than I ever could have understood. This is what Jesus is saying to you. Jesus is saying, you are closer to becoming a hypocrite who does the right things for the wrong reasons than you'd realize. That's what he says in verse one. He says, beware, watch out, be careful of practicing your righteousness. That word righteousness. He's saying to do good things, not bad things. To practice your righteousness. What what that means is to live in line with the word of God. To live in line with the word of God, he says, before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He's saying be careful because you are susceptible to doing the right things, not because you love God, but because you love the praise of other people. That in every, listen, in every spiritual endeavor in your life, even giving to the poor, you are much more susceptible to hypocrisy than you realize. And what does it say in verse two, or verse one? For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. God does not reward hypocrites, no matter how generous they are to the poor. He just said it. He doesn't reward hypocrites, no matter how generous they are to the poor. And now look, look at verse two. He says, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. So Jesus references these people who call them hypocrites that apparently they knew who he was talking about. They're giving to the poor for all the wrong reasons. It's very unlikely, I was reading some commentaries this week, it's very unlikely that they were sounding literal trumpets. It's very unlikely that that was happening. More, it's metaphor, it's imagery that Jesus is saying they might as well have been sounding trumpets. Because the way they gave in the synagogue, the way they gave in the streets was in such a way so that you would notice them. And their hypocrisy was this. Their hypocrisy was they were doing all these good things and they were presenting it to the world as if they were doing it because they loved God. As if they loved the needy people they were serving. But he's saying that's not true. They loved the praise they received. He says, watch out. You're close to being like them. Now, do any of us, do any of you, do you really believe you're that close to that level of hypocrisy? Like, do, do you really believe like, wow, if I'm not careful, I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm gonna give to the poor, for all the wrong reasons. Not because I love God, but because I love praise. I sincerely doubt it. I sincerely doubt it. I've heard a lot of fears in this church. I've never heard anyone say, I'm really afraid of becoming a hypocrite. I haven't heard it. Because hypocrisy, especially in our generation of who loves authenticity, being a hypocrite is the worst possible thing you could be. 
We'd rather you just sin and rebel egregiously than be a hypocrite. And all of us are terrified of becoming it. When you use the term hypocrite, you only use it for those people you respect the least and despise the most. We're so scared of becoming a hypocrite, and yet Jesus says we're closer than we think. So how could I, how could you, become something we despise? Listen, no one pursues hypocrisy. No one aims to be a hypocrite. No one thinks, you know what? Three years time, if I work hard enough, I could be a hypocrite. That doesn't doesn't happen. No, No one's doing that. Do you know how you become a hypocrite? It's not by pursuing it. It's by the unbridled pursuit of the praise of other people. That's how you become a hypocrite. It's the result of loving the praise of other people more than being honest, more than God himself. And it's especially tricky in the Christian faith, and you need to hear me on this. The praise that you receive from other people for morally right actions is intoxicating. Receiving praise for morally right actions is intoxicating. Like, it, it's one thing to receive praise for something that you know is wrong. It's another thing to receive praise for something that you don't really care about or is morally neutral. But it's another thing to receive praise for what you know is good and right and noble. It's a powerful thing, not a bad thing. It's a powerful thing, but it's dangerous because then it becomes difficult to know, wait, wait, am I obeying God because I love him? Or truthfully, more than I want to admit, I want someone to notice and to praise me for it. And and I would imagine the hypocrites Jesus is referring to, they didn't start solely as hypocrites. I'm sure when they began to try to obey God, they're a lot like you, a lot like me. Their motives are complicated. Like when you obey God, your motives are complicated. If you're a Christian, you have spirit and flesh in you, so your motives are always going to be complicated when you obey God. But these people, when they at least appeared faithful and they received praise for it, they loved the praise more than anything else because here's what happened. Obedience to God brought them esteem from their community. It brought them influence. Obedience and seeing being right in people's eyes, it made them feel secure, it made them feel strong. The pats on the back and the words of approval is what kept them coming back for more. And you need to hear me, of all the threats that are to your faith, one of the biggest threats to your faith actually existing and thriving, it's your love of praise of other people. The church always thinks that the worst threats are out there in the world. No, the worst threats are in here. The worst threats are how much we love the approval of other people. Now, listen, it's a threat not because encouragement and kind words are wrong. Don't, do not hear me say this and think, okay, we, shouldn't, we can't encourage people because they may take it the wrong way. If you're here thinking, yep, that's why you gotta keep them humble, exactly the opposite of that, Okay? If you're that person, you're like, my spiritual gift is criticism. Not a gift, right? Not a gift. You're told over and over again to encourage in the Bible. You're never told to critique. It's not in there. So we should keep encouraging one another, but here's the threat. My sin, your sin, wants the approval of people more than we realize. You see this in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, Jesus is confronting the same group of people, these religious leaders, and he tells them, Do you know how I know you don't want to know God? 
It's not some complicated theological answer. Jesus says, the reason you won't believe in me is because you love the praise of other people. John 5, 44. Jesus says, how can you believe, almost incredulously, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? He's saying, how could you follow God with any sincerity when what is in the bottom of your heart is a desire to be praised by people more than God? Hear me, church. This temptation knocks on the door of your mind and your heart every single day to do the right things in order to be noticed. To do the right things in order to be noticed. And listen, if you're saying right now in your mind going, well, not, I don't wanna be noticed by everybody. Rare is it for people to wanna be approved of by everybody, but there's always somebody. There's somebody you really want to notice. There's somebody at work or in the church or in your family that you really want that person to approve of you. And if, if you don't have that person in mind, it's probably because you currently have their approval. You, you don't realize whose approval you want until it's removed from you and you feel how angry you are at them for not approving of you. All of us want it from somebody. And social media just amplifies this temptation. So not only now do we struggle with wanting people around us and friends and community around us to recognize us, but now the social media, you can have people all over the planet recognize you and, and approve of you and praise you. But listen, we're smarter than to sound trumpets and to say, everyone, look how much uh, I've served the city, but maybe we'll post a picture on Instagram or Facebook or whatever and just say, love serving my church, praise hands kind of thing. And we put it on there so people will notice. Maybe you're just celebrating what God has done, or maybe you're thinking, hey, don't stand up and applaud for me. That'd be nice, I'd take it, but don't stand and applaud for me. Maybe just like the post. Maybe just share it. Some of you are thinking, see, I hate those kinds of people. I hate when people do that. But maybe you're mad that they're doing that, not because you're super godly, but because you're mad they're getting approval that you think you deserve. That's a sneaky thing about it. Usually the people we get most frustrated with, oftentimes they're probably getting something we don't think they deserve, and you're thinking, well, who deserves it? Well, I do. It's really easy to do the right things for the wrong reasons. And if you begin to obey God in this way, you begin to do it really for the praise of other people. Jesus says, it's not just that it's less than ideal. He doesn't say it's just, well, it'd be better if you did. He says the consequences are devastating. Look at verse one again. He says, if you do this, the second half of the verse, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He doesn't say less reward. He says no reward. And he says, verse two, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. The only reward hypocrites will receive is the praise of other people. When Jesus says, truly they have received their reward, it's a statement of fact and a statement of condemnation. Listen, there are actual rewards for hypocrites in this life. There really are. You can be a hypocrite and you can be applauded and put on a pedestal. I mean, you see this happen all the time. How often is there someone you look up to or a celebrity you respect and then it turns out 10 years later, oh, they're not who you thought they were. How often does that happen? But what does that tell you? 
the world will still reward hypocrites. You put on the right image long enough, people will applaud, people will approve of you. There's no doubt about that. But Jesus is saying, that's the only reward you'll get. The only reward you will get is the praise of other people. That's the extent of the blessing you receive, for instance, your righteousness and generosity. And this is a ter- <laughs> this is terrifying reward because if you live for the approval of other people, and a lot of us do, your life only gets increasingly pressurized for an incredibly fickle reward. When the praise of other people is what motivates you, then the pressure in your life to maintain the image that people praised only intensifies. I mean, you felt this before when, you want some, when you've wanted someone's approval. You begin to sense, and even subconsciously, you begin to sense, well, the reason they praise me was because I did this, because I did that, because I was faithful, because I was consistent, because I was on time. And so you begin to realize, okay, if I keep doing that, I'll keep getting approval. But then what do you do when who you truly are is gonna let them down? This is why we lie, because I don't wanna lose your approval, so I'll keep up the image even if it's not true. What do you do when who you truly are is not consistent but weak? What do you do when you know you're going to be a disappointment? See, the pressure of the praise of other people is you have to keep performing. You have to keep up the facade. You have to keep putting on the filter that says, everything's okay, I'm good, you're good. You can rely on me. Then you can't admit when you're broken. You can't admit when even your best obedience to God is sloppy. You can't admit, you know, I don't love God a lot right now. I don't love this person the way that I should love them. And listen, if you're honest, in an age of authenticity, if you're honest and say, actually, I'm not who you think I am, I really struggle with the thing that you think I'm strongest at. Because that's what happens in my life all the time. When someone thinks I'm strong at something, I want to keep up the perception that I am strong. But in an age of authenticity, you can be honest and say, I'm actually not who you think I am in that regard. People may respect you and even appreciate that about you, but listen, you will get applauded less. You'll get lauded less. This is what I found, was people, people are only impressive from a distance. The more you get to know anybody, the less impressive they are. That doesn't mean they're not noble people or people you respect, but the more you get to know human beings, the more you realize they're just like you. You created some superhero in your mind, but that wasn't true. And so when you're honest, now you feel more like a peer with me than someone I need to esteem all the time. That's the pressure of the praise of other people. And then, listen, if you live your life for the praise of other people, their praise is so empty. The praise of other people is so empty. If you go after it, I'm telling you, even when you get it, it's not gonna satisfy you for very long. Have you ever noticed that about yourself? You'll get approval from somebody like last week, but because they haven't told you in 10 days, you're like, I wonder if they even care about me. I mean, they said I love you like two weeks ago, but like, what about today? My boss said I was doing a good job like two months ago. I haven't heard anything. I'm probably getting fired. Like, like you, you get to this place because you get their approval, but then you need a fresh dose of it because it's not as strong as you thought that it was. 
And it sends this spiraling. And also, guess what? People are fickle. And what they praise changes. And so what you thought they would praise you for, maybe they were just having a good day and they were encouraging, but what about the next day when they're having a bad one? You do the exact same action and you don't get any approval or praise. We, we turn into Tinkerbell. We're like, clap for me or I'll die sort of thing, right? And, and it's funny, but like we all do it. Or we learn to not care about it and settle for less and not love and don't care about other people. Here's what I found, last thing about praise of other people that makes it so fickle. It usually has more to do with them than with you. Usually has more to do with you highlighting something they care about, making their lives easier. Has more to do with them than it has to do with you. And it's this incredibly elusive thing that creates anxiety and stress and insecurity more than it ever satisfies. But that's what you're left with. Listen, if if you don't have a superior identity in God, if you're here and you're not a Christian, that's kind of the world you're left with is kind of just figuring out whose approval I should be aiming for. But Jesus' kingdom has a better way. Verse three, he says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So here's the first thing I want to say. I want to hit it quickly, but it needs to be said. Look at verse three. But when you give to the needy, Jesus assumes and expects his people to give to the poor. He expects us to do it. He says when, not if, but when you do this. Why is he saying, why is he assuming it? Because throughout the scriptures, The theme and the command from God consistently to his people, if you want to be like me, then you need to especially care for those who lack material possessions, status, and power. It's the best picture of how God treats us. And we care for these people, not based on your personality type, not based on what calling God has given to you, not based on your political leanings, but based on God himself has commanded his people to do so. No one in our city... No one where the people of God are gathered should care more about those who lack than his people. There's no one in the city who should care more about those who don't have opportunity and those who don't have education and those who don't have food and those who don't have homes more than we do. And so without getting to all the the logistics about what this means, it may mean you having a care package on hand that you can just give to people when you see them. It may mean serving in some form or fashion. It may mean helping getting people education. It may mean helping them get a job. I mean, even by, listen, by giving to this church, you're giving towards our benevolence fund that helps partners of this church when they fall on hard times. You're giving towards things like the For the City Network, which is a nonprofit that works with other nonprofits to see this city blessed by our presence in it. But listen, the more affluent you are, the more you'll over-spiritualize these verses and say, well, it's not really about giving to the needy, it's about sincerity. That's what affluent people do. We take gritty verses about generosity to the poor and we make them about sincerity. And the answer is it's both. But don't skip over it, let's not assume it. And then Jesus says, when you obey God, like you should be, when you obey God to give to the poor specifically, he says, do so as discreetly as possible. He says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now once again, this is imagery. It's not a literal thing because there's no way for you to not know what is my right hand or left hand doing? 
There's no way for you to say, I have no idea what's happening. Like, that's not a reality. What he's saying is, the imagery is, if someone was standing next to you here, your giving to those who lack should be so discreet, they wouldn't be able to see what your right hand is doing. They wouldn't know you were being generous. That's the sort of secrecy he's talking about. That you do it in such a way that you wouldn't want people to know because you want God to to know that you love him and you're doing it because you're obeying him. Your right hand, your left hand also, the other piece of this, is that you wouldn't dwell on it for your own sake either. So maybe you think, hey, no one else knows, but I know, and man, I am great, aren't I? I'm so generous, look at me. He's saying, don't even let your own heart dwell on it. Don't let other people see it, don't let your heart dwell on it yourself. Now, don't create a new form of legalism. Don't think if anyone ever knows, then all of your obedience is void. Look back at verse one. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Listen, people are gonna see your generosity from time to time. People are gonna know, even if you give something to somebody, that person who received your gift, they'll know. So does that mean your giving is void? No. He's saying, be careful. Are are you sharing with your friend how you're generous to this person because you want accountability, because you want to seek clarity on what's the best next step to care for this person? Or are you telling them because you don't really care about instruction, you really just want them to know that you gave to somebody? Your intention is everything. And Jesus says, be secretive. Be secretive. Now, here's the reason why. Not just for the sake of being secret, but because your father rewards this action. Three and four, we're almost done. It says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Listen, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. The point is this is so crucial for your understanding of the Christian faith. God rewards the faith that obeys and gives in secret. Because secrecy means you're doing it because you really do love God. You really do love this individual. You, do really do, you really do love these people. It, it means you must believe that God exists. You must believe that he sees you. You must believe that he's pleased with you. The way of faith will mean that you obey in certain ways that you don't always see immediate results. It will mean you obey in ways where there's not this public affirmation that what you did was right and good. This is why the praise of other people is so alluring to us because at least when you praise me, I can know it was worth it at least for that. If you'll honor me because of my obedience, at least even if it doesn't pan out that that was right or good, I at least got to be credited it in your eyes. This is why sin is so tempting and faith is so difficult. Sin requires no waiting and no restraint. It requires no waiting and no restraint. The temptation of sin, the reason you sin is because sin says, no, no, you don't have to wait. You want attention? Give in this way. You feel lust? Act out now. You feel lonely? Settle for this person. You feel envious? Gossip and slander. You feel frustrated? Hold the grudge. Right? You, sin is saying, no, listen, you can have an immediate, quick fix to whatever it is you're desiring. That's why it's so tempting. It promises, even though they're weaker and lesser rewards, they're still immediate. 
But faith, faith requires patience. Faith requires hope. Faith trusts that God's going to come through for me even if the immediate circumstances don't seem to tell me that. That I can trust that he sees what's going on, he's for me in ways no one else is, and he'll reward me in ways no one else can. Faith is fueled by this. Hebrews 11.6, this is, this is the definition of faith. This whole chapter, Hebrews 11, is a definition of what faith is. Here's what it says. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe two things. That he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith is rooted in the belief that God exists and he sees and rewards. So giving in secret to those who lack is a unique exercise in faith. Because listen, they can't pay you back. People who lack material possessions, status, and social clout and power, they can't pay you back with anything. Well, then if no one knows that I did this, where's the return for me? What what benefit do I get? Jesus doesn't say, just do it because you're supposed to. He says, do it because God sees and he rewards. And the rewards he's gonna give you, he doesn't say specifically what they'll be. The, The focus is not on the reward you'll receive. The focus is on the father who gives them. The focus is, listen, your father in heaven, who's known you and loved you and chose you as his own, he will reward you. And you can have in your mind, well, if he's gonna reward me, then I won't be disappointed. I mean, that's the story of the people of God. The people of God is bigger than just your story and my story. It stretches back thousands of years of women and men modeling for us that authentic faith will not disappoint. Though there are seasons where it's dark, it will not disappoint. I don't know if you've ever read Hebrews 11. If you have or you haven't, you should reread it. Because it's this story, it's the kind of arc of what faith looks like, what faith does. And, and listen, in a highly individualistic culture, you, your story is gonna have lulls in it. Your story is gonna have seasons where there doesn't seem there's much going on. That's why you need the church locally, why you need the church globally and historically is to give you stories of God's faithfulness over there to remind you he's faithful here too. Your, your, your story, my story is not big enough to inhabit all of God's works and all of his activities. So I need the lives and stories of other people to fuel my faith, to see him be faithful so I can keep trusting him. And when you read Hebrews 11, you see all these stories, this kind of snapshot of these people who said, no one really sees what I'm doing. No one really notices that this is faith, but I'm gonna trust that God sees. And sometimes, listen, sometimes their faith meant putting, what it says, putting foreign armies to flight. Sometimes their faith meant raising people from the dead. And we all like that kind of faith, right? That's the kind of faith that we gravitate towards is that faith where you can see it manifested clearly and powerfully and quickly. That's what we wanna testify to. But there's other verses in Hebrews 11 where it says, and their faith also meant them being destitute. And their faith meant aligning with people that their culture rejected. And their faith meant giving in ways that left them with less than they could have had if they weren't so generous. Faith doesn't, listen, you've got to hear me on this. Faith does not always mean 
prosperity. It does not always mean prosperity. And listen, I don't know how you grew up. Some of you may be thinking, well, I don't believe prosperity gospel. Well, maybe you don't believe it for money, but maybe you believe it for emotions. Maybe you believe it for relationships. Maybe you believe it for physical healing. Maybe you think, if I was just faithful enough, then God would always give me happiness. He would always give me the relationship. He'd always give me the healing. But when you read Hebrews 11, sometimes the most faithful people don't get to see the things that they long for. All faith means is that you're loyal to the God, your father, and you trust him to say, he'll see me and he'll reward me. And when you look at Hebrews 11, all of the stories of these heroic women and men of faith, they're all culminating in the person of Jesus The point of the story is to say, look at how God has rewarded the faith of these people, and yet the pinnacle of our faith, the story of our faith does not culminate in your story and in mine, it culminates in Jesus' story. Look at Hebrews 11, 39. The the summary statement of all those stories, it says, and all these, all these men and women from gone before us, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. There was still something lacking before Jesus came. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses who exercise faith, let us also, everyone in this room, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the pinnacle of what faith looks like. He believed that God existed and that his father saw him, and he loved him, and he'd honor him for trusting him. See, and the cross is the pinnacle of that faith, because on the cross, no one saw it as faith. Listen, when he's being crucified, when he's hanging there on the cross, nobody is thinking God is for him. Everybody's thinking God's abandoned him. This is why his opponents mocked him because they saw it as defeat. This is why his family mourned him, because they saw it as the death of the one they loved, with no hope. That's why his followers fled from him on the cross. Why? Because all the promises he made that we thought he was the Messiah, clearly he's not. He's dying right now. And yet, Jesus trusted God and said, even though they don't see even though no one recognizes who I truly am, even though no one's honoring him and no one's praising him and no one's trusting him, Jesus is trusting, saying, I know my father sees. And I know he'll reward. And this is why the resurrection of Jesus is so central to our faith, because the resurrection says God saw. God was aware of what, what faith was happening. So God rewarded him. And gave him the name above every other name. Gave him a throne over every other authority and power and kingdom. And so Jesus, now he's called the founder and perfecter of our faith because he showed us the way. 
and he secured the way of faith. And here's a really important piece. We're, we're almost done. The good news of the Christian faith is not look at Jesus. He's shown us the way. Try to have as much faith as he did. Get ready to feel like a failure because you won't have a faith as strong as his. I won't have a faith as strong as his. You are way too, I'm way too weak and wobbly and stumbling to trust God the way Jesus did. The, the good news is not he's our example and just be like him. The good news is he's actually founded your faith. He's perfected your faith so that even weak faith in him is now strong. Even if right now you feel like your faith is hanging on by a thread, you barely believe that God's real, you barely believe that he sees you and will reward you in the ways that you're obeying him, even that thread becomes like iron when it's attached to who Jesus is. Even the weakest faith, even the mustard seed of faith becomes strong in Jesus. He shows us that faith in him will always be seen and rewarded by God, even if no one else sees it as that. Even if your obedience is not praised or applauded, it will be by God. So Matthew 6.1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Be careful. You're a lot closer to hypocrisy then you realize, and there's no reward for hypocrites. And three through four, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so your giving may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Fight for faith. Fight to believe you're not just obeying because you're supposed to, you're obeying because your father sees. And that when Jesus rose from the dead, he showed you, he modeled for you, he promised to you that there's not a moment of faith that's in Christ that will ever be wasted. There's not a moment, an act of faith that will ever, ever, ever be in vain. Let's pray together. Father, the amount of time we have spent as human beings jockeying and striving after the approval of other people, God, it's exhausting even thinking about how often we do it. God, even if it's not for everybody, there's usually somebody's we're after, and God, we have to admit how often we want it more than we want you that we'd let go of faith in you if we could just be rewarded by these people. And God, some of us have gotten that approval and we're wondering why we're still so empty. Some of us are longing for approval, not realizing it'll never satisfy. And yet God, here you are coming to a bunch of people who are so close to hypocrisy, who've acted like hypocrites ourselves, and you come and you say, trust me, I see you. And God, you never tire of giving us your approval. You never tire of saying that we're pleasing to you, not because that we've been so good, 
but because Jesus has been so good. God, we're not here because we've been so strong and our faith is so steady. God, we're here because Jesus is so strong. His faith is so steady. His work is complete. So God, help us flee from the ways that we have acted like hypocrites, not just for the sake of authenticity, but for the sake of knowing and being loved by you. God, even now, bring to mind the ways that we need to be honest with the people around us that we're not obeying for the right reasons. To be honest in the ways we've given to be noticed, we've encouraged so that we could be noticed, the ways that we thought we were being faithful. And God, we lay those things at your feet and say, even our righteousness could not stand before you. God, the only place we can stand is on grace and grace alone, on Jesus and Jesus alone. And God, would that fact motivate us to be a people who serve and love and strive for faith even when no one sees, even when no one notices? Because it's enough, God, that you do. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen, church. Let's stand. Let's sing together.